I'm giving you 15 minutes. You will begin with your understanding of the Bible and you will end with your understanding of the return of Jesus. And in between, you will talk about all the major doctrines of the Christian faith in a way that will make sense for your life and the lives of others. Can you do it? Let me help you join us for this series that we're doing on Sunday night called Doctrines for Living. Tonight we are going to shift gears a little bit uh, in our uh, doctrine of God. We're talking or on trying to unfold a, the doctrine of God as it's uh, made known to us in Scripture. And uh, we began by just asking the question, how do we talk about God and how do we come to a knowledge of God and, and uh, hopefully seeing that we do not do that just by thinking and reflecting on God. We do it by responding to what God has revealed and what God has revealed specifically in his word. Our knowledge of God comes through the word of God. And there is no knowledge of God that is definitive or has any fullness to it that does not come from the Word of God, the Bible. And we also recognized, I hope, that uh, we're talking about uh, what is incomprehensible. You and I will never know God fully this side of heaven. And I do believe fully that when we get to heaven, we will spend all eternity continuing to learn who God is and worship at the footstool of our God who is so amazingly incomprehensible that it would take beyond eternity for us to comprehend the fullness of this God. We also talked about what is the foundation of any doctrine of God, and that is the Trinity. So tonight, we're going to give our attention to uh, the attributes of God. What are the character qualities of this God? And then we're going to talk about, not tonight, we're going to talk about the will of God. People are very concerned about knowing the will of God. How do we uh, discern the will of God? Particularly, how do we uh, discern the will of God in the context of the sovereign rule of God? If God rules and reigns over everything, I'm with Irby. That memory verse for this month is a marvelous verse, and it makes it very clear that our God reigns, our God rules over everything, and our God does what he pleases. Uh, How do we go about discerning the will of God in the context of the sovereignty of God and the providence of God? And then uh, in a couple of weeks, we we will wrap up our study of the doctrine of God by talking about angels and demons, and also by talking about creation, about who God is as our creator God. So before we, uh, before we pray and get into uh, our study of uh, uh, the attributes of God tonight, uh, let me just remind you, I think I'm right about this, uh, but next weekend you need to remember to move your clocks ahead one hour. Isn't that right? Next week is spring forward, so uh, next week uh, on Saturday night, make sure you spring forward so you'll be on time for Sunday school and on time for worship as we gather uh, next Sunday morning. So don't forget to do that. Let's pray together. 
Father, we bow before you using words that you have given us because even the language we speak is a result of your gift. You have formed the words and given them to us that we might speak to you and that we might speak about you. You are unlimited. You are above us and beyond us. You are incomprehensible, so that even when we talk to you, we recognize that we're using limited language. We call you Father, and we call you Father because your word has taught us that because of Jesus and only because of Jesus, we can enter into your presence and we can call you Father. A person who does not know you through Jesus cannot call you Father. Uh, They may use that language, but it has no meaning because you are a Father only to those who have come to you through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But even when we call you Father, we recognize tonight that our language is limited. There are men and women that gather here tonight around these tables that when they think of their fathers, they think of one of the greatest people they have ever known, a wonderful, kind, generous, gracious man. But there are others that when they think of their father, they don't think in that way at all. So there is some natural inhibition in calling you father for people who've struggled at home with their fathers. And there's even inhibition in the lives of those who've had wonderful fathers because we, we tend to see you as we see our fathers, our earthly fathers. We use that language, but to call you father is vastly beyond our knowledge of what it means to be a father, even if our fathers were the greatest men that have ever lived. And we're limited in what we say about you, and yet we can know you, and we can know you in the way you want us to know you because you simply have chosen because you want us to know you to make yourself known. And tonight, Lord, uh, we pray that as we look at some of these wonderful, beautiful, powerful, almost indescribable attributes of who you are as God, that you would make yourself known to us in all of your beauty, all of your glory, all of your majesty. And I pray tonight as we look at these attributes that our minds would be stimulated and our hearts will be moved and our souls will be stirred to worship you. All of his study of doctrine is not to build up knowledge in our heads, but to inflame our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit with a passion for you. None is greater than you. None is more beautiful than you. None is more majestic than you. You alone are God. And beside you, there is none other. And we bow even this night in our hearts, even in this moment, to declare the glory and the majesty and the wonder of your great name. 
And we do so in Jesus' name, even as we pray in his name. Amen. There's probably no greater passage in the Bible to depict for us the greatness and grandeur of God than Isaiah chapter 6. So kind of to set the table for our talking about the attributes of God, let's just read through the opening words of chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Now God gave these words to Isaiah as a deliberate bringing together two realities. The first reality is the trust of a human ruler. There was probably no greater ruler over the people of God to that time than Uzziah. Uzziah would fall away in his latter years and would not be as faithful to God, but for a period of time he had risen to great fame among the people because he was so faithful to God, and the people loved him. They depended on him. They tagged their hope to Uzziah. But Uzziah is not God. And Isaiah is given this vision. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Now, you're going to see as I keep reading this little passage here that that, uh, this is one of those places, one of the many places where Language is limited, so you have skeptics who read this and they say, ah, there's one of those contradictions. Because the Bible says that no one can see God and live. And here's Isaiah saying, I saw the Lord. Well, that's why you keep reading the Bible, because you ought to ask, what does he see? What does he see? Does he really see the Lord? This is limited language to speak of an infinite experience, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. And when the Bible uses the word throne consistently, it's not a throne on the earth, it's a throne in heaven. The throne of God is always in heaven. It is high and lifted up. He is high and lifted up. And the train of his robe fill the temple. Now, the picture here is of Isaiah in the temple seeing God. Isaiah is looking toward the Holy of Holies. God would be in the Holy of Holies, and his train, quite like the train of a bride, would be behind him. Isaiah does not see the face of God. He sees the train. He sees the same thing Moses saw, basically, the backside of God. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Now covering his face, these majestic beings, these heavenly beings, these beings created by God for the purpose of enabling the worship of God in heaven that are sinless beings, these sinless beings can't look at God, they cover their face. 
And they have about them this sense of unworthiness in the presence of God. They can't enter into intimacy with God. They cover their feet. And they fly. They can't stand in the presence of God. They can't sit in the presence of God. And they fly around this throne of God that God inhabits and one call to another. This is antiphonal singing between the seraphim as they fly around this beautiful and majestic throne of God. And this is what they say. Holy, holy, holy. It's the only time in the Bible that three attributes are ascribed to God and those three attributes can be understood in a Trinitarian way, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, or as a plural, a multiplication of majesty. This God is infinitely, eternally, essentially holy. You want to know who God is? This is who God is in his essence. He is holy. He is the Lord of hosts. He is the Lord that rules over all the fighting forces of heaven. He engages the battle to defeat all the powers of darkness, all the forces of evil. God in heaven is holy, holy, holy. And what about on the earth, the whole earth? The whole earth is full of his glory. Now look at what happens next. When this God in the temple experienced by the preacher as the holy God of heaven engaging warfare upon the earth, look what happens. The foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. This is mystery. This is marvelous mystery. Isaiah is there. The preacher is present in the midst of this vision, and he's overwhelmed by the majesty. He's shaken by it. And what does he say? Woe is me. Any vision you would ever receive from God about who God is would not ever drive you to come closer. It never does. It drives you to see how sinful you are, how separated you are from God by nature, how much you deserve his judgment. I am lost, he says. I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the sovereign, the ruler, the one who reigns, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. It's so hot, so full of fiery judgment that he can't touch it. He touches it with the tongs and he takes it. And he touched the mouth of Isaiah and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin 
atone for. This is just a small glimpse into the greatness and the grandeur of God. Let's talk about his attributes. The attributes that from about the 4th century forward, theologians who've studied the Bible more intensely than, than I have, This is what theologians have said about the attributes of God. Now, I want to make this clear at the beginning, and I've got it on the screen. We're going to talk about two things, incommunicable act and communicable, communicable attributes. That's the word that theologians use. Incommunicable mean these are attributes that you don't share with God. None of us in this room, in this room have these attributes. These belong exclusively only to God. Communicable attributes are attributes that God shares with us. And the next line here is very important. God is his attributes. What I mean by that is we don't have God and then we have these characteristics of God. The characteristics of God define for us biblically who God is. So who is this? Who is this God? Incommunicable attributes. They belong to God alone. He is the one and only true God and his Trinitarian essence. He is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Behold, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Deuteronomy 6, 4. He makes himself known as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is the eternal, everlasting, immortal, infinite God. Theologians refer to the first of his incommunicable attributes as simplicity. Now, I'm going to use their terms, and I'm going to explain them to you because when we hear simplicity, we think something different than what it means when it's used in reference to God. What it means is God doesn't have parts. God doesn't have compartments. So I have compartments. You have compartments. You can be a husband or a wife. You can be a mother or a father. You can be an employer or an employee. You can be a member of a civic club or some other organization. Each of those require of you different things, right? Acting in different ways. That means you are a complexity. God is God. God's not made up of parts. When we come to God through Jesus Christ, we come to God, and this God is in his essence always the same. I am a body, or I have a body, What the Bible teaches is the essence of my nature is that I'm a soul, or you may like the word spirit. But the essence of who I am as a human is that I'm a soul, and my soul is in a body. My soul will never die. My body will perish. So we are spirit beings. We are born that way. We are born with a soul that will last forever. 
And we, that soul is found in the framework of a body. God is spirit. God doesn't have parts. So the Bible speaks of God as if God has parts. The Bible speaks of the arm of God not being shortened. The Bible speaks of the eyes of God, the ears of God, the hand of God, the feet of God. But God is God. Secondly, we speak of his aseity. That means he is self-existent. Nobody made God. God has always been, God is, God will always be. He is the ultimate final cause of everything. That is what we're talking about when you hear somebody say, He is absolutely and totally sovereign. That means that God is the ultimate and final cause of everything because God was before anything existed and he will be after everything is gone. He is the only self-existent being. Uh, Look at Psalm 90. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 90 and listen to what the Bible says about our God. Psalm 90. You could go to lots of places to see this. Beginning in verse 1, this is the beginning of the fourth book of the Psalms. There are five books of the Psalms. This is the opening Psalm of the fourth book. It's a prayer of Moses. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you formed the earth or the world, from everlasting, that is from eternity past, to everlasting, eternity future. You are God. You return man to dust, and you say, return, O children of man. Uh, This is God's sovereignty over the span of our life. It is good and right for us to say, in answer to the question, when are you going to die, what's the answer? When God appoints the time for you to die. When you can say it is when your time comes. You're not going to outlive, outlast your time because God has appointed not only the places of our dwelling while we're here on the earth, he's appointed the days of our lives. A thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. The one who is eternal and everlasting, who always has been and will always be, created time for our benefit. He doesn't need it. It means nothing to him. You sweep them away, verse 5, as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger, but by your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. This is God, the everlasting, eternal, self-existent God. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. 
We live under the sovereign hand of God, the eternal and everlasting God. The years of our life are 70, and if even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble, they're soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. We live out every moment of our lives under the auspices of this God who is the self-existent God. When we say that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God, we are not saying that he was created by God. We're saying, using the language that is used in the Bible, that he proceeds from God. He is God in and of himself, equally God with God the Father, proceeding from the essence of God. God is, furthermore, eternal and infinite. He is forever. He never ends. We see God clearly. Thomas Watson was a 17th century Puritan who wrote uh, one of the best uh, theological books ever written. In it, he says, we see God clearly, but not fully. We're called and compelled to adore him where we cannot fathom him. You know, one of the things I think that comes out of understanding who God is biblically is that, and I believe God designs this, I believe God desires this, that we see no matter in, in, in any of our thoughts tonight sitting here in this room, no matter how big God is in your mind, he's not big enough. He's bigger than you could ever conceive. And I hope that when we see how big God is, as biblically understood, we also see how small we are. Satan's greatest delight among a people is to get us to the place where we bring God down to our level and up and ourselves up to his. He wants to close that gap. And yet the story of Scripture is that gap needs to be kept as wide as it can be kept because the Bible makes it extremely wide. God is transcendent. That means he's above the world, he's beyond the world, he rules over the world. Go to Isaiah chapter 66 and just see what is said by the prophet about this God. Above us, over us, beyond us, we can't get to him. He, if he doesn't come to us, we are without hope or without help. Isaiah 66 verse 1, thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me, and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word. Every time you hold this Bible in your hand, whether you're preparing to teach or where you're, whether you're studying or just in your quiet time, 
you're holding what God gave us. You are listening to the voice of God. And when we understand that this is the eternal God who is speaking to us in his word, it should cause us to tremble in his presence. John 4.24 says God is spirit and we must worship him in spirit and in truth. You know, we, we may wonder, why would we do something on doctrine? How does that apply to our lives? Well, just think about it. If we have a right biblical understanding of God, we would never, we would never construct a worship service that would be without some sense of holding up high God in our reverence of him. We wouldn't do it. We would want people who don't know this God to know how great and glorious he is, and we would want them to have some sense of discomfort in the presence of a God and have them ask, what kind of God is this? Now, this next one causes people some problems. I don't know why, but it does. God is impassable. That means that though we use feeling terms when we talk about God, God is not captured, God is not controlled, or God is not compelled by feelings. Now, let me ask you a question. You're hurting. You're going through something in your life, okay? You're struggling. And somebody comes along and says, I can assure you, I can assure you that God feels what you feel and he's hurting with you. Or would you rather have someone come along and say something like this? I can assure you on the authority of the word of God that God knows exactly what you're going through and exactly what you're feeling. And he's the only one who can give you what you need. I can tell you who I want. I don't want a God who just knows what I'm feeling and identifies with my feeling and can't do anything. And I don't want a robot who doesn't understand what I'm feeling. I want a God who understands what I'm feeling and can enter into those feelings in a way that can give me what I need. I want you to go to two places with me. I want you to see this one because this is so very important. Hebrews chapter 4, Irby did a great devotional tonight in our first family ministry, and when he told us where he was going to read from, I thought, oh my, I hope you don't steal my thunder tonight. But I shouldn't have been concerned because the Bible's so rich, there's enough thunder here for all of us in this room to teach this passage. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, since then... We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He's able to enter. The word sympathize means he's able to enter into our struggles. So he's able to enter into our struggles. He's able to know our weaknesses, to understand the source of them. 
but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, to the very throne of God through Jesus Christ, that we might receive, do you see the next words? That we might receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. That text is so rich because it communicates so clearly that no matter what you face in your life, what you need most, what I need most in every situation ultimately is the mercy and grace of God. I need God not to treat me as I deserve to be treated. And I need God to give me undeserved favor, which is what grace is. I don't need God's justice and don't desire it. Because that justice has been satisfied in Jesus. I need his mercy. And I need his grace. Go to 1 Corinthians 10. This is another passage that just addresses this issue so clearly. So we can see that if we really think about it, we don't want a God about whom we say he just feels what we feel and understands what we feel. I need a God who can enter into what I'm experiencing and give me what I need. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, that ability that's given by God, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. Now look at the next words, that you may be able to endure it. That's not what I want to read there. You know what I want to read? I want to read that he'll always deliver me from temptation. That he won't take me into the place of temptation. That's not what it says. It says in the midst of temptation, God knows where I am. He knows what I'm facing. And he will give me everything that I need to endure it. His impassibility means that when we talk about God and his feelings, we can't think of his feelings in the way that we think of our feelings. God is able to enter into what we're feeling, but to reach beyond them and through them to give us what we need. That, that's why when, when we read in the Bible, just as we did in Psalm 90, about the anger of God and the wrath of God, you'll make a big mistake if you think of your anger and wrath and think God must be that way. No. God's anger is holy anger. Ours most often isn't. God's wrath is holy wrath. Ours isn't. Or when we say God is love, God's love is pure and perfect. Truth is, most of our love, because we're sinners, even redeemed by the grace of God, most of our love is not pure and perfect. But do we want it to be? Absolutely. But it seldom is. So we have to be careful 
when we think about feelings. Next incommunicable attribute is immutability. I love this one. God never changes. God never changes. God is always God. God never changes. Malachi, go to the end of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. Listen to what is said here. For I, the Lord, do not change. O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. God is always the same. Uh, Go to James. We used this verse not long ago in our teaching on James. James 1.16, do not, be, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming from the Father of lights, that is the Father who created the lights, who created all things, with whom there is no variation nor shadow due to change. Now, go to... Go to Jonah 3.10 because I, I just thought I probably needed to deal with this because there are those who want to raise the hand at this point and say, well, that's not right. That's not right, Al, because there, there are evidences that I read in the Bible of God repenting, God changing his mind. So I do know that the Bible does say that God changes his mind, that God repents or God relents. Jonah 3, verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. It's not God changing his mind because God's mind is fixed. If we repent of our sins and turn in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, God will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all righteousness. Is that true or false? It's true. That is a decree of God, and that decree of God is unchanged. Now, we need to read Jonah in, in, the, in the light of the rest of the Old Testament because there's, a, there's another book that deals with Nineveh. It's the book of Nahum, and what does the book of Nahum record? The complete and total destruction of Nineveh. God did relent because there was repentance among the Ninevites, but ultimately he fulfilled his decree and the place was forever destroyed. Second Timothy, Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 19. This is so much, there's so much comfort in this. That God does not change his mind. God is the unchanging God. Verse 19 of chapter 2. God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. Always has, always will. And let everyone who names the Lord depart from iniquity. Thomas Watson, again, that great Puritan, said those who resist God's will do in fact fulfill it. 
Because what God has decreed as His eternal and infinite will will be done because He is the unchanging God. He is omniscient. Omniscient means what? He's all-knowing. I want to just say this. I don't have time to develop it tonight. But if you give up on God's omniscience or you compromise omniscience, you are headed for disaster. And there are a lot of people that without, without knowing what they're doing, I hope, compromise God's omniscience. God does not know all things. God does not know all things from the beginning to the end. He cannot do all, know all things from the beginning to the end because that violates my freedom and God would never violate my freedom. But when you begin to give up on God's omniscience, then you've got to come up with some understanding of Scripture that allows you to say and say out loud the things that God does not know. And once you come up with things that God does not know, you begin to compromise your understanding or the biblical understanding of who God is. God has always been omniscient. God is omniscient. He will always be omniscient. He is omnipresent. He's present everywhere at the same time. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He can do whatever he pleases. He is omnisapient. He is all-wise. He is sovereign. He rules over everything and every one. Daniel. It's one of my favorite verses because of the source. <laughs> Daniel 4:34. This is a pagan king. This king has no interest in this God of Israel. Daniel 4:34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? Now, I want you to know that I understand in the midst of painful situations and perplexing situations there's something about us that raises the why questions to God. But I just want to caution you tonight, be very careful about doing that. Because you're raising questions to the God who is in infinite control of everything that happens and who loves you with a love that you can never comprehend. So when you're raising those questions, you are raising questions that relate to his love and care for you. And no one can love and care for you and me like this God. We see who he is as God when we see how he makes his name known. Go to Exodus chapter 3. Moses has been called of God to lead the people out. Exodus chapter 3, verse 1, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, pagan priest in a pagan land, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. 
He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, where the bush, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord said that, saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. Whenever God repeats a person's name, uh, that's not just for emphasis and not because Moses is deaf. This is material to which we are called to pay attention. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. Wherever God shows up on earth, it is holy ground. A manger in Bethlehem, a cross outside Jerusalem, those are holy places. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Now, listen, friends, this is a right biblical view of God. It is to see him so majestic, so marvelous. So far beyond us and above us that if he were to show up tonight, we would all fall under the tables and cry. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their servants, their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, so forth and so on. Now look at verse 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. Now that's the translation of a Hebrew phrase that's basically untranslatable. We don't know exactly what it means. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. I am That's how Jesus uses it. I am. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am. And he said, say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you, this is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This God who is captured in the essence of I am, I am, I have always been, I will always be. He makes himself known to Moses again when Moses begs him. Turn over to Exodus 34 when the people had turned away from God and turned to idolatry. Moses interceded for this people, and he pleaded with God, and God made himself known to Moses. Exodus 34, verse 5, look at these verses, they are just absolutely beautiful. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God. Now listen to what God says about himself. Merciful 
gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. This ESV translation says, and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, that is, he keeps his covenant with his people, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. Do you see that in verse 7? Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Those are three entirely different words for sin. Iniquity has to do with the violation of the law of God. Transgression has to do with the violation of the law of God. One, we would say, has to do with sins of omission. The other has to do with sins of commission. And the word sin has to do with who we are as sinners. God says, I forgive not only what you do as sinners, I forgive who you are as a sinner. But then look at the last one. But who will by no means clear the guilty? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and he worshiped. To know who God is is to know that he is far above us and he is way beyond us. One of the mistakes that we make, I think, is that we tend to think, if we're not careful, we deserve something from God. We deserve nothing from this God. And that he says to us that he is merciful and gracious and forgiving and slow to anger and abounds in steadfast love, that he keeps his covenant. He forgives not only what we do as sinners, but who we are as sinners But he does not let the guilty go free. That he brings his judgment upon those who refuse to acknowledge who he is and receive the gifts of grace and mercy that he brings to us. We have to know who God is in being beyond us. This is what I want you to see. All of this tonight is so you and I can see this, I pray. We have to know the God who is way beyond us before we can have any appreciation that this God who is way beyond us came to us. There was no mandate for him to do that. There was no real reason for him to do that. Because God is complete in himself. But God set his love upon us as the Jew Paul would say, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We should be overwhelmed by his grace. We should be stunned by his mercy. We should stutter in his presence that he loves us in spite of our sin. And we should be hungry and thirsty to worship this God 
at every opportunity we're given. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Well, he shares some attributes with us. They're called communicable attributes, and we'll talk about those on next Sunday night. Father, it is a privilege to be able to talk about these things, to, to ponder these great truths. We thank you, Lord, that in ages past, the kinds of things that we're thinking about tonight, uh, what I'm about to say blows my mind even when I say it again and think about it. What we're pondering tonight is what in earlier ages children knew. And children learned these truths before they were baptized as your children because the church wanted them to know your greatness in order to appreciate and be overwhelmed by your grace and your goodness. We're grateful that we can learn them together along the way as we look at these things that have been the foundation for your church as Your church in her history has studied your word and dug deeply into your word and out of it derived what are the great confessions of the church. And those confessions have become the core beliefs that people have worked for and people have died for, people have gone to prison for. And I pray that, again, as I began tonight, I pray that learning these truths Learning these truths would not swell our head, but inspire our hearts to bow before you as the great God that you are and to worship and adore, to love and to honor you. And above all else, even this week, to desire from the depths of our hearts and souls to obey you. Father, thank you for this time together. Bless our week this week and use us this week as you give us opportunity to be good and faithful gospel witnesses to others. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.